welcome to the Artist Appeals. This is Erin Sparler and I'm your host. In the Artist Appeals, we interview artists, crafters, photographers, and business professionals about the business of art. I hope you'll join us and enjoy the show. In this episode of the Artist Appeals, I want to introduce you to a woman who knows her stuff. She has been doing art licensing for over 20 years. In fact, she has a gallery in Southern California where she sells and licenses her husband's artwork. He is one of the most renowned surfboard artists nowadays with his artwork featured on a myriad of different products from surfboards to wine glasses to sunglasses. And in this episode, you can hear about all those stories as well as what piece has earned them the most money through licensing. It's a really interesting story. You don't want to miss it. So since the late 90s, she's been doing art licensing and they have earned over six figures consistently every year, even during the recession, through these processes. She offers amazing free stuff in her blog, in her free email coaching newsletters, She also offers one-on-one consulting, and now she's got a book, a best-selling book called Art, Money, and Success. She's just a lovely woman, and I'm so excited to have her on the podcast. Please help me introduce, and please get ready for a wonderful interview with Maria Brophy. Hey, Maria. I'm so excited to have you on today. I'm just thrilled. You are doing great stuff for artists and the art community out there. I just love your new book and your new website, and you have so much experience to share. So you guys, I'm very excited to introduce Maria Brophy. Hi. Hello. Thanks. I appreciate that really enthusiastic intro. (laughs) Well, I'm enthusiastic, if nothing else. I'll I'll tell you a little (laughs) secret. Back in the day when I was growing up as an early teen, they used to call me Sparky. So, uh, Uh I earned that nickname. (laughs) Sparky. I love it. That's awesome. (laughs) So, Maria, I always love to start the conversation with a little bit of a backstory. So, you know, I've been watching you progress over the last couple of years and um, increase your internet presence and do some internet marketing. And you've got this beautiful website with a new book. But how did you get where you are today? What was the defining moment that you said, I'm going to reach out to artists and start teaching them the business of licensing art? Can you tell us a little bit about maybe what caused that transition or, or led you to become more of a public figure and, and share all this amazing knowledge? Yeah, and that's a great question. And I've never answered it in this way, but this is, I, it just popped in my head. I never plan to help other artists because I was just trying to figure things out for myself. But once success started showing itself where I started, you know, representing my husband's art and it took a few years to figure out licensing and sales and working with companies and how to put deals together. And then next thing you know, we, we became fairly successful. People Mm -hmm. were coming to me in droves asking for help. And mm-hmm. this was um, this was in the you know two thousand three, two thousand four, two thousand five that era. 
when I yeah. started really experiencing success where we were getting Drew's art on a lot of different products that were being sold in stores and we were selling a lot of paintings and artists were coming to me saying, how'd you do that? How'd you, yeah. How did you get Drew's art into all these surf shops? How did you get his art on an album cover? How did you, how did you, how did you, how did you? And I started thinking, well, gosh, how did we do that? Let me think about that. And I started answering questions, but it got to a point where I couldn't spend all day talking to people. So there was this new thing on the internet that was interesting <laughs> called, called a blog. And I was like, oh, I'll just start writing a blog and I'll answer the questions that I keep getting in blog posts. And then I yeah. can just tell people, go to my blog and the answer is there. So that was what I started doing because I do love people. And I guess I'm one of those people where if I figure out the best eye makeup. I'm going to tell all my friends. I'm going to be like, oh my <laughs> gosh, you got to buy this stuff. This is what it did for me. This is where you get it. And I'm like that with everything. And so I became- You going to start making makeup videos next? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I do not even know how to put makeup on. I just do the bare minimum. But you know- Hey, you're a California just... <laughs> girl. You don't need makeup. You're sun-kissed. Right. Exactly. <laughs> but, you know, and makeup gets in the way when you're like paddling out to go surfing, it gets, gets smeared all over your face. Yeah, not fun in the heat. <laughs> so I just started answering questions and I found out that I really cared about other artists. And I realized that a lot of the mistakes I made in the beginning of working in the business of art, all artists are making those mistakes. Oh, yes. The difference is I have this thing about me where when I run up against a problem, I'm not a complainer. I'm a figure-outer. Yeah. You so solve I, it. And I want to figure out the solution. And once I figure it out, then I want everybody else to know what it is. Yeah. So that is how I started working with artists. I started writing a blog and then artists started asking me, you know, do you do consulting? And I'm like, no, but maybe I should because a hundred people have asked me. So I started doing consulting where I would, you know, charge by the hour and you can mm -hmm. pick my brain. And then that led me into writing a book. Mm -hmm. But everything that I teach, everything that I write, it's all comes from what I figured out for myself and my husband's art business, selling yeah. art. And I'm never going to talk about something I haven't experienced myself. Yeah, you're talking from real life experience. Yeah. And that's, that's what we need. That's what we artists need is real life experience. So let's actually talk about your husband's art for just a second because we should tell people what he makes. So Drew started out as a surfboard artist, painting these crazy skulls and sexy chicks on surfboards when he was Yeah, it's really 20s. illustrative. Very yeah. illustrative, very poppy, very bright colors, surrealistic. Uh -huh. He was self-taught, so nobody taught him how to paint. And in the beginning, like as a teenager, his art was not that great. And that's important to mention because... Yeah. Because the reason I mentioned that is I want everybody to know that if you're not where you want to be with your skills, you will get there if you want to. Yeah, you can do it. You can. 
You can grow. And the other thing is you can start making money as an artist, even though you're in the beginning stages and your skills aren't where you want them to be. You just maybe won't be in the high figures in the beginning, but it doesn't matter because if you live by the brush, quote unquote, the way of the brush, <laughs> if you, <laughs> you know, if you have a choice between waiting tables or doing a job you don't really like to do, or painting signs, and maybe that's not your favorite thing to do, but you're honing your art skills. I say paint the signs, right? Or yeah. the surfboards, or the skateboards, or the or or paint the dogs. If you don't love doing dog portraits, but people are asking you for that, and you have a choice between that and waiting tables, do the painting because you're going to be a better artist putting your time into painting things that maybe aren't your favorite thing to paint, but you're getting paid to do it. And yeah. uh, so I don't know how I got off on that tangent. No, no. We were talking about <laughs> Drew's art. You know, I think one of the reasons I brought up his art is because it is so distinctive and it's not realistic. It is not traditional oil painting. It is not even traditional illustration. It's what we've kind of come to know as like skater art or surfer art. It's got pot leaves and eyeballs and crazy monsters and skulls. And it, it is all bright, contrasting colors. So I don't know that people looking at this type of work or doing this type of work would immediately think of it as licensing, as, as something that you can really make a living doing. But he's been doing it for years with your assistance, right? It's, and he was doing it before I met him without any help. So he just was doing it at a lower pay level, you know, in his 20s. But when you have somebody working with you, you can scale so much more. Yeah. Behind every good man is a great woman. <laughs> True. No, just... Or or an assistant or, you know, it doesn't have to be your woman or your man. It could be, you yeah, know. Yeah. Anybody. And I yeah. mentioned that, I mentioned that because I don't want any of your listeners to think, oh, the only reason Drew's successful is because he's got his wife helping him. Oh, certainly not. But having I mean, a partner in life is just... It helps. Yeah. It, yeah. It, 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 and, but it doesn't have to be a family member or somebody you're married to or your lover. It mm -hmm. could be somebody you hire mm -hmm. part-time. I know a lot of artists. I know... And you don't have to start that way either. No, you absolutely don't. You just have to start. You just have to yes. start. And, and then when you start building up what you're doing, and then you realize, okay, the emails are taking too much time. Fixing my website takes too much time. I need to hire somebody maybe for five hours a week. Yep. And that's how you get started with having someone help you. Yeah. Or automation. Nowadays, we've got automation. So with emails, you know, you've got Constant Contact and Aweber and all these things that can help you take some of that off your plate too, which we'll get to later on. Yes. But yeah, so we were talking about art, which is the first step, is creating every day. You got to create something, you guys. You've got to go out there and make something. So the appeals system, we use this acronym, appeals, art, product, presentation, educate, amplify, license, and success. And I'm just trying to make an easy-to-remember word that helps arrange a huge amount of information, right? So that actually kind of leads us into our, the second one, which is product. You have licensed Drew's work onto tons of different products. 
his work, his artwork has become surfboards. And can you give us some examples? Yeah, surfboards, skateboards, boogie boards, all kinds of beach products, beach towels. But it's also on glassware, like fine glassware, like beautiful glass bottles and and drinking glasses. Yeah, I saw some of that. Beautiful. Personal water bottles like by SIG. Hundreds of products. Exercise equipment, which sounds kind of weird. Exercise equipment. (laughs) (laughs) How did that do? Like, How did that transition? It's called an Indo board and it's... And just, I think it, I've seen those. Yeah, so you can buy one of those today with Drew's art on them. Uh, t-shirts, boogie board shorts, very cool. Children's clothes, so many different products, and it's really great because one thing artists need to understand is when you have a portfolio of a lot of work, it's easier to license your art when you have a lot of images for a company mm-hmm. to choose from, and the company is paying you to use those images on their products. But at the same time, they're also marketing you. Mm. Your name, your name is going to go on everything. Yeah. Your name is going to go on the, it's going to go on the hang tags of the t-shirts. It's going to go on the packaging, the water bottles. It's, it's going to go on the advertising. And so now not only are you being paid, but you're also Having your work promoted and exposed to a large audience that you cannot reach on your own. Now, do you put that in all your contracts that his name needs to be on the product, right? Yes, absolutely. It's required. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it creates multiple revenue streams because if you're only selling fine art or originals, how many originals can you paint in a year? And how much can you sell them for? If you do the math, it doesn't work. If you paint one painting a day and you charge $1,000 for it, that's not realistic. That would be 365 paintings a year. And you know that might be at $1,000 a lot of money, but can you sell a painting a day? No, it's not realistic. Okay. You're going to love this, Erin. Okay, <laughs> here's a great, great example. In 1999, okay, I'm going to give you an example of a painting that sold for $450 and to date has earned us over a quarter million dollars. Okay. So, yeah. So in 1999, Drew painted a painting called Pure Joy. It's a little small painting, 18 by 24, I think was the size of it. 18 inches by 24 inches. Uh We sold it at an art in an art gallery for $450. So Drew got paid $225 for that painting because the gallery kept 50, yeah. 50%, right? Yeah, right. The owner, I remember the owner's name, the guy who bought it. This was 1999, but I, I've kept in touch with him. His name's Brendan. He lives in Los Angeles. He bought the painting. He owns the original. We kept the copyrights as we mm-hmm. do to everything. Yep. Smart. Since then, that that painting has been on over 50 different products. Wow. We've sold thousands of paper and canvas prints of it. We've made almost $300,000 off of that one image alone. Wow. That's making your artwork for you. Now, you know, the, one of the reasons I say it's so important to always keep all your copyrights, if you are a full-time professional artist in it for the long run, and especially 
if you have a distinctive style, you have to make sure you always own all your copyrights, all the reproduction rights of your work, no matter who you're selling or licensing your work to, whether it's an individual person or a multi-billion dollar company, you always maintain ownership of the copyrights because out of every, you know, 20 paintings you do, only one is going to really be a hit. Just like an album, Mm -hmm. you know, most albums, there's Mm -hmm. only one or two hits on most albums. Yeah, It's the same idea. And you want to make money off of that hit over and over and over again. And when you die, all right, well, when Drew and I die, Mm -hmm. our son, who's 18 years old um, right now, our son will get ownership to all the copyrights of all of Drew's work, and he will be able to continue to make money off that art. I believe current copyright law, correct me if I'm wrong here, but it's life of the artist plus 75 years by default, correct? Yes. Yeah. And then after that, it goes into the public domain. Yeah. So that's actually a really long time. You know, if if the artist lives to be 80 or 90, and then plus 75 years after that, that copyright retains. You know, I got to tell our audience, I went ahead and looked up Pure Joy by Drew Brophy. And I'm just going to describe it a little bit here. It's a wave in these neon green colors and blue. And it's like a, a tunnel. What do the surfers call that? A, a tube. A tube. It's a tube. Yes. And he's, <laughs> he's riding the tube. This, this young blonde haired surfer with red shorts is riding this tube and he's coming out on his surfboard and it almost looks like a tongue. He's just got his hands in the air and he's so happy. And there's this big sun just orange and yellows stripes up the back. It's, it is a very colorful, very fun piece. Well, it captures the pure joy of surfing. Yeah. And the funny thing, you know what's really funny about that painting? It was painted in 1999. Mm-hmm. Our son was born in 2001. Our son grew up to look like that character. <laughs> oh, wow. And so so Drew, Drew said that, you know, he didn't even realize he was manifesting a little human being when he painted that. Wow. Wow. So cool. You know, and talking about copyright, retaining the copyright and the fact that you had this piece, that leads us into presentation and this idea of photographing and presenting your work in the best light. So I imagine you probably have some tips and tricks or something to say about getting the best photograph of your work before you sell it so that you can reproduce it at the highest level, right? I'm really glad you brought that up because that's really important. Yep. Never let a piece of art leave your studio without you having gotten a high-res shot of it. Even if it's not your favorite painting or piece of art, it doesn't matter what you like. I would have never guessed that Pure Joy would have earned all the money it earned. Mm. I never in a million years would have guessed that. Right. Okay. You did what, what you, your favorite work is not everybody else's. So you have to capture high res. So how do you do that? Well, with small pieces of art, we have a good, pretty good scanner. Mm-hmm. And when I say small, like an eight inch by 10 inch. Yeah. Anything bigger than that, I actually have a photographer that does it for me because uh-huh. to get a proper high res scan, you really need good photographic equipment and you need to know how to do it. Or, and not that you can't learn, you can. I could probably learn how to do it. I just don't want to. Right. And Drew, 
Drew's an artist through and through, and he would rather pay a photographer to do it than do it himself. Mm -hmm. But it can get pricey. Our photographer charges us a hundred bucks an image. Mm -hmm. And Drew pumps us out like a hundred pieces of art a year. So you can imagine that gets expensive. Right. But I would say if you don't want to pay a professional photographer to do a proper scan for you, learn how to do it yourself. And you can Google that. There, yeah. there are ways to learn. I actually just wrote up a huge free PDF last night. I just finished it. It's like three pages long of tips and tricks of ways to photograph your artwork, even if you don't have an expensive DSLR or fancy lighting. So I used to teach digital photography and all this crazy Adobe stuff at the collegiate level. So I took all of that knowledge and rolled it into like a four-page PDF that I'm going to give away free on the website. So if you guys are interested in that, you can check out the free downloadable PDF with tips and tricks of how to photograph your artwork, even if you don't have a digital SLR or fancy lighting. I got lots of tips and tricks. But oh, I think that's the, awesome. Yeah, I think the best way is to just start. You know, you've got to get those images. Even if you just capture an image with an iPhone or a fancy smartphone camera, they're all 12 megapixels and more now. So if you have the iPhone 7 Plus or up, it's 12 megapixels. And that's big enough to print a 13 by 19. And as long as you've got a good image that's sharp and decent colored, you can enlarge those in Adobe. A professional can do that for you. So make sure you get an image. That's the first part. Make sure you get it sharp and then go down this, download this PDF and just make sure you get good images. So that leads us to stories about artwork, about educating people, which you are doing. So we have build art every day, make art every day, turn it into a product so you can make extra money, present it in the best light possible, and then educating your audiences to the benefits of your work. That is so important, you know, creating stories around your work. Certainly, Drew's work has stories inherent in them. Do you have any stories that you like to tell around the artwork or ways that you communicate those stories? Yeah, absolutely. You know, every every painting that Drew does has a story. Oh, really? It. Yeah. And so I'll give you an example. There's one called Wall of Skulls. Mm -hmm. And it's funny, it is not my favorite painting because it literally, it's of this surf spot in Tahiti that Drew has surfed. And there was a time in the 1800s where this tribe of people lived there and other people were coming and poaching their food. And so what the chief did was he said, look, I want to stop people from coming here. So the next person that comes and steals our food, we're going to cut their head off. And so they started, <laughs> so they literally started cutting the heads off of these food thieves and made a wall with Yikes. their skulls. Ugh. Yeah. So that's what this whole painting is. It's of the wall of skulls with the big wave, and the name of the wave is Chopu, which is translated as Wall of Skulls, and it's a real place and it's a real story. And wow. it's funny, when I have somebody looking looking at this, and we've sold a lot of, the original sold a long time ago. How much did the original sell for? <laughs> so the original Do you remember? sold, yeah, it was like, well, three or four thousand dollars, something it's like pretty that. Pretty good. It was a big, yeah. it was a big, big piece. Um, and we saw a lot of canvas prints of it. 
But when I tell people that story, it makes them want to buy it. It's funny, <laughs> you know, because it means something. It's got, it's like a real story. It's got history. Yeah, it really does. But I think for, you know, for your listeners, like your stories don't even have to be that elaborate. Like it could be like we were talking about Drew's pure joy painting. There's not really a story, story behind it, but there's a meaning and a feeling behind it. And what it is, mm. it's when you look at this painting, if you want to know what a surfer feels like when they caught a wave, that's it right there. So yeah. that's the story behind that painting. But, you know, for other people, like I know a lot of women that, you know, the big thing is women taking back their power and we're entering the time of the divine feminine. And that's a big thing right now. And so I know a lot of female artists where their artwork, while it's not of women, it's inspired by this idea that we're entering a time of the divine feminine where women are rising and, and becoming powerful again. Mm where we had been held down for 2000 years. And while a painting might not show a woman taking back her power, you know, literally, it could be an abstract painting, but it it has a meaning that's related to that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. How do you communicate those stories? Do you guys put little write-ups on the back of the canvases or you know, how do you convey some of those stories? That is a, a great question. Uh, yeah, so it's really taking the time to just write up with something, what either a piece means or what inspired it or what it represents. And when you're doing an art show, for example, I, you know, not many people do this, but I highly recommend it that you take the time to not just create a label that tells you the title and the price and the size and the medium. But a second label that's maybe on the uh, next to it that describes what the piece is about, because mm -hmm. people want to care about something. Yeah, and, they do that and, in museums. Yeah, and why not do that with an art show? Or if you have a, your play, your art displayed in a gallery, or in your studio, or even on your or website, at a coffee shop, a coffee yeah. shop. Um, and online, um, when you're posting pictures of works on Instagram, always tell something about it. And it doesn't have to be deep and meaningful. It doesn't have to have history. It doesn't have to be serious. It could be funny as shit, right? It could be like, <laughs> one of my favorite artists is this guy named uh, Drew Toons, T-O-O-N-Z. And oh my mm -hmm. gosh, his stuff is so, it's all cartoons. It's edgy. It's funny and everything's got a story to it. I mean, it's really cartoonish, but he's hilarious. And that's how he draws people in because every time he posts something, yeah. there is a funny story to it. And he's always making fun of celebrities. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So he's kind of got a niche, you yeah. know, I think it's so important. Um, I heard one time from the pencil, I read an article from the pencil neck. He's a neat guy that gives a lot of advice to artists that one of the best underused real estate in art was the back of his frames, the back of his art pieces, and that he's taken to putting on the back of every single piece that he ever sells a short story, his name, his number, and how to buy more. <laughs> yeah. 
and it works. And that guy, I know him personally. I mean, he's a million dollar a year artist. Wow. You know, and that's always fascinating to me because, and I like yeah. his art, but I wouldn't say he's like the best artist out there. And, and that's, you know, it, it's not that it's, it's, uh, he is a good artist. But what I'm saying is, yeah, he's very realistic. His work, you guys, and we'll put links to all of these guys so you can see their art. Uh, His work is extremely realistic pencil drawings. You know, he's not doing oil paintings, which tends to garner higher prices, always oil paintings over, Mm -hmm. over everything else. He's doing pencil sketches and he's been doing incredibly well with it for a long time because he's really good at marketing himself. And anybody can learn how to do that. Like what you just said putting that on the back of his pieces. That's so simple to do. You don't have to go around and say, oh, I'm the best artist in the world. You don't have to mm-hmm. toot your horn. All you do is you make it easy for people to find you. So if you're selling, let's say you're selling paper prints of your work and they are in a, you know, one of those crystal clear bags, well, in the back of it, you throw in like a postcard or a piece of information that has your website, your name, your phone number, your email. Make it easy for people to buy. Yeah. Yeah. So simple. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that leads us into how do we simplify? There's so much for us as artists to do. It can be really overwhelming. So the next step in the system and the seven step appeal system is to automate and amplify your outreach through automation. Do you have any great tips you know, you've been blogging, you've been doing the website and all this stuff. And you guys are just two people, just you and Drew, like you're really down to earth, real life people. How do you scale up? How do you automate things and communicate with your audience and still have a life? Just to be totally transparent, (laughs) I swear, I feel like I've got 12 balls in the air every day. And I feel like I always feel like I should have gotten so much more done. Right. And so we all feel that way. Oh, yeah. So I just want to get that out there because I don't want anybody to go, oh, she's got it all together, blah, blah, blah. And, you know, but 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 I have automated a few things and I feel like I need to automate a lot more. And I'll tell you one of the things that really helped. I'm a huge proponent of having a newsletter list. So Mm -hmm. what I've done with Drew's newsletter list to his his collectors it's hard to write a newsletter list on a regular basis when you've got a lot of other things going on, right? Yeah, it so is. So what I did was I, yeah. I set up an automated evergreen newsletter system. Hmm. So Do tell. Um, right now I have like 20, 20 emails. So once a month. So if you sign up today, you're going to get email number one, which mm-hmm. is like an introduction to Drew. And then... A month mm-hmm. from today, you'll get email, the next email, which he's talking about a specific piece of art that he did a long time ago. And so each email is a story behind a piece of art. And the emails are written to be evergreen. And what that means is they are timeless. So in the email, it's not mentioning yesterday I did this and tomorrow this is happening. It's you can read right. the email three years from now and it's still timely. And I set it up that way because email number one was written three years ago. And I keep adding to the automation. If you signed up for his email a year ago, you're on email number 12 right now. 
So they go out once a month. And that way we know that that Mm -hmm. way, if we go two months without sending an email because we got really buried with work or we also travel a lot, we take a lot of time to play. And when I'm playing, I'm not working. So So I don't want two or three months to go by without somebody getting, we we want to keep the audience warm. So that's why I set that up. But some months you will get two or three emails from us because then I'll send an email saying, hey, we're having this event in our gallery, you know, on August 17th. So then I just add those timely emails as new news comes up. Right, right. That's brilliant. I love it. Add the news in as the news happens, but then have pre-set up emails that nurture. I think they call them nurturing emails that allow people to learn more about you and your art and your business. I noticed that Drew's transitioning into sacred geometry, and I I don't want to let this escape (laughs) because I actually studied sacred geometry in grad school with an amazing artist named uh, Mark Reynolds. Great guy. And I'm wondering how this transition developed and came about and how you are going to educate and tell stories around that. So maybe it's backing up a little bit into the educational section, but let's talk about that for a second. Well, Drew has always studied ancient cultures. It's been like a hobby of his since he was Mm. younger, and he's somewhat an expert. He's a walking encyclopedia on ancient cultures, going back as far back as you can go in history. And he's traveled all over the world to ancient sites. And he also studies quantum physics and all those things. And so he really got fascinated by sacred geometry, the flower of life, the meaning of it, because when he started looking into ancient cultures, there are places in the world where the flower of life pattern, which is sacred geometry, is etched Mm -hmm. into stone, dated 50, 60, 70,000 years old. And mm-hmm. um, he wanted to know more about that. And that was when he started painting it to better understand it and to understand the ancient language of sacred geometry, which sacred geometry is actually a language. It's a visual language. It's a, it's a language that describes how everything works from the tiniest of planks in your atoms to the largest items you know, in the cosmos and everything in between, including sound, matter, and what we mm. can't touch. So it's, it, it's really phenomenal. And, and he started painting it because he thought by drawing it and painting it, he would better understand it. And that is absolute truth. To understand it, you must mm-hmm. draw it. Well, it's part of the process that development is supposed to represent the growth and development of the universe, as I understand it. But, you know, it's interesting to me because it may not seem like a logical transition, but it certainly is because I like to think that surfers and people communing with nature and doing these types of things are often seeking something greater. But sacred geometry does tend to be rather abstract as well, and maybe not as readily accessible to the general public. Sacred geometry is in all of nature. It is in all of us. It's very mathematical. I mean, I'm not going to go into it because Drew can explain it a hundred times better than I can. 
but our entire body is made up of sacred geometry. Our, you can visually see it in plants and patterns all in nature. And when you start looking at it, you start seeing it everywhere when you start studying it. But how to tell the stories? Oh my, oh my gosh, it's, it's easy to tell the story behind every abstract painting when it includes sacred geometry. And Drew does describe it really well in all of his paintings. And if you go on his website and you start looking at some of his paintings, there are some pretty good descriptions that go with each one. Yeah, you know, I think it's interesting because it's such a beautiful art form. It's very geometric. It's repeating patterns. But let's talk about it from like a marketing perspective. Traditional licensing looks like and has their tradition of being like kittens and puppies and snowflakes and things that people think traditionally are easy to put on product, like, you know, roosters are big or owls, those types of things, right? So how do you license sacred geometry? There is a place for it. And with his sacred geometry work, it's higher end, higher end market. So Mm -hmm. we're We are particular about where we put the sacred geometry art, but we actually have it on fine glassware, beautiful drinking glasses Mm. and uh, glass water bottles, Mm -hmm. also on tapestries. And we are uh, in discussions with a major jewelry maker. And right now it's just discussions, but to have it on necklaces and bracelets and it actually works really well. And this would be higher end stuff, jewelry pieces that are in the 100 to $200 range. Mm-hmm. It, it actually works. That sounds gorgeous. It, it is. Oh, I believe it. I believe it. You know, I'm kind of referencing, you read a great article a while back about his transition from not necessarily leaving surfing art, but, you know, this um, new pathway that he's finding. I think it's in your 11 day newsletter that you guys can sign up for on her website where you talk about target markets, where you talk about finding your niche by figuring out who these people are and where they go to. And you talk about going to um, a conference for like metaphysical type of activities, right? Yeah, it's called the Conscious Life Expo. So that was where we really debuted Drew's Sacred Geometry series called his first series. It was a series of paintings. Uh, They're amazing. Just absolutely incredible. Huge, giant Mm -hmm. pieces. And it was a whole series called Exploring Sacred Geometry is the title of the series. And we wanted to expose it to the right people, people who study physics, people who are into the metaphysical, people who are into ancient cultures and so forth. And what better place than to expose it to the people who attend the Conscious Life Expo, where they have the world's leading leading right. experts on those topics come talk, including one of Drew's mentors, a man named Nissim Harriman, who is a physicist who speaks about mm. a lot of these things. And Anyway, we um, contacted the promoter of the event, which the event has 10,000 people a day attended, and it's a four-day wow. four event, yeah. and people come from all over the world. And how many artists 
exhibit um, this there event? There were a few artists exhibiting. I don't know exactly how many, a few, but we didn't exhibit uh, in a booth because I didn't see. I, I always look for ways to do it where I don't have to pay. This is something I talk Smart. about in my book. My book is Art, Money, Success. And this is something I talk about is not paying for things and finding a way to provide value to someone. So we contacted the promoter and we said, look, we don't want to. Yeah. An exchange. What we want to do, we have this beautiful series of art. Do you have a place? You have this giant hotel that you're, you're doing this event at. Do you want us to decorate an area? And he said, well, it's funny. You asked, I actually have a 30 foot wall that 10,000 people a day walk by and it's blank and boring. And if you can figure out how to hang the art without putting holes in the walls, because the hotel doesn't allow it. Oh, that's always a challenge. Uh, we hung the art. And so we nice. went back there. We, we did it three years in a row and it was a great Great way. And they asked us to do it again. But but then the last time we yeah. just we had other things going on and we couldn't do it. But it was a win-win for it was a win for us and it was a win for them. Yeah. We actually sold art. We didn't have a booth set up per se, but we captured people's emails. We had a way of getting people to give us their to sign up to win a free print. So we got email addresses and we actually sold art and we added a lot of people to his new list of people who were interested in that art, which is a new audience for him. Yeah. So I got to know, because when I worked at the college, we had a gallery space and they didn't want holes in the wall. I ended up getting a gallery system that goes across the top and has yeah. a metal wire that hangs down and you slide the wires along. How did you guys hang artwork without putting holes in the wall? Did you get a system or what did you do? We would have gotten a system like one you just described. We we actually were able to kind of rig a system like that at very little cost, almost no cost at all. Because we were lucky the wow. wall, there was like a lip in the ceiling where we were able to hang wires down. I, I don't know. It worked out perfectly. We got really lucky. So you just got in there totally and made it did. happen. That's, that's kind of what we do. <laughs> that's what we do. Hey, that's what being an artist yeah. is all about, right? Yeah. Making it happen, yeah. figuring it we out. Just figure stuff out. We, you know, I, I never know exactly how something's going to go. I didn't know that guy had a 30-foot wall. All I knew was we want to exhibit art there. I'm going to call him and I'm going to start a conversation and see... See if he's mm -hmm. interested. See if it's going to work out. I mean, if it doesn't work out, okay, my feelings aren't going to get hurt. At least I tried and it worked out. I mean, there, you're never going to get yeah. anything unless you try. And you really amplified your outreach. How did you collect names and numbers? Did you put out a jar for people to stick their card in or, you know, did you have to man it or how did you do that? I, I configured this thing that I hung on the wall where it had a little mm -hmm. pocket. And I made a sign and the sign said, win an art print, winner will be chosen on, you know, and I put an exact mm -hmm. date so they know it was for real. Either put your business card in or, and I provided little slips, give me your name, phone number, and email address. Nice. And, uh, and that was how I collected names and I added them to my newsletter list and I made, made it clear that their name would go on a list. Yeah, that's how that's we did awesome. It. That's so brilliant. It works, and you didn't have to go stand in a booth and pay ten thousand dollars for a booth and set up a tent, and and you didn't take this artwork 
to a craft fair. Nope. And I don't, I, I, I kind of have this thing where if there's going to be more than two artists selling at an event, mm. I'm not doing it. And now I know, let, let me just back up for a second and say, I know that there are art fairs where there are 50 to 100 artists present and they all sell their work, like the really good curated, juried in Mm-hmm. shows where real buyers show up. I know they exist, okay? But a majority of the art fairs out there are not where yeah. I want to be because I don't want to compete with other artists. I don't want to go or the weather. where it's a... Or the weather. I don't want to go where it's a shot in the dark. If you're going to sell anything, I prefer to create my own scenario where we go to events where there are no other artists, where I created the opportunity. And I'll tell you, we did this once and and it was actually by accident that we did it. There was an event in San Diego. It was the first year. It was called the Sacred Craft Surf Show. And it was, Drew was the only artists there. Um, and it was because we didn't buy a booth. We had a friend that had a booth, our friend that sells surfboards. And he called us up and he said, look, I got this giant, I paid money for a 20 That's by a 20 booth. booth. And I, all I have is surfboards and I want you to bring your art, make my booth look really cool. And I'm not going to charge you anything and you can sell anything you want out of my booth. And we were like, okay. So, I mean, it was an hour drive from our house. So we said, okay, let's just try it out. So we brought a bunch of art, mostly paper prints, mostly forty dollar mm-hmm. prints. I think we had twenty dollar prints. We had a couple, couple other things. We didn't expect much, but we had a ton of friends that were there because it's a surf market, and we were like, "Oh, it'll be fun." We go there. We made a couple thousand dollars in one weekend, mm-hmm. which doesn't sound like a lot of money, but all we were selling was paper prints for twenty and forty bucks. And I was just a like, lot of art. Wow, I was like, whoa. That's amazing. So then the next year we exhibited there, we actually got a booth and we sold a lot more because this time we were like really ready to sell, right? But then the third year, a ton of other artists were there Mm. and we barely covered our booth fees. And that was when I realized we're really much better off being at, if we're going to do a show where we're paying for a booth and we've got all these expenses, I want to do it where we're like the only artist because then everybody's yeah. excited to buy from us. Well, and there's a and there's a million opportunities. Yeah, you have like to that. know who you're trying to reach and then think outside the box. And we're artists. We can think outside the box, right? We're problem solvers. Yeah. Artists are problem solvers. You guys can do it. Yeah. Well, that brings us into licensing. So, how did you get into licensing? You you did the sales of prints. You did the sales of originals. It sounds like you've done galleries. You've done sales of prints, blah, blah, blah. Let's talk a little bit about licensing and what was the first piece you licensed? How did you discover licensing? Well, the first, you know, we kind of fell into it because Drew was a freelance artist in the surf world. And so he had a multiple of clients, but his main client back in the 90s was a company called Lost Surfboards. 
And they first had him painting thousands of surfboards a year, right? Like tons of surfboards. He would travel all over the world. But so many people loved his surfboards because he was painting all this crazy stuff on them. Yeah. That law started saying, let's put some of this stuff on T-shirts. Then they started putting them so on So every surfboard was an original? Lost was making clothing. Yes. Ooh, wow. Yes. Yeah. And so then they started, so, they, so law started putting Drew's art on clothing. Yeah. And Drew would, would charge them just a flat fee for each piece of art. So but he wasn't Drew getting a royalty. Was not an employee. He was not because right. we didn't know anything about that stuff back then. But he was doing pretty well. I mean, Lost was selling, his stuff was selling so well that Lost kept him busy full time and paid him a decent wage, a decent mm-hmm. amount of money. But that was when we were young and we didn't really know how things worked. But because of the copyright laws, Drew owns. Every single image he ever let Lost use. But Drew did write on all his invoices. Drew, somebody gave Drew a tip on this. Uh, An older Mm -hmm. agent. I want to hear it. He he told, so he was an agent to a guy named Rick Griffin, who was a famous artist in the 60s and 70s, who is no longer with us. But uh, Drew was a huge fan of Rick Griffin's. Rick mm. died in a motorcycle accident, but he did a lot of the, he did like Grateful Dead oh. artwork. Cool. Yeah. And a lot of major bands, Bob Dylan and so forth. His agent, a guy named Gordon McClellan, lives in our town. And he met Drew one day when Drew was really young in his 20s. Mm-hmm. And he said, Drew, I want to tell you, don't make the mistake of giving anybody your copyrights. You will be able to own your artwork forever and ever as long as you keep your copyrights and, you know, don't make the mistake a lot of artists made, you know, in the 60s and 70s. So that was where Drew first learned about it was that guy put it in his head. So Drew started writing on his invoices to Lost for one t-shirt design, maybe used for t-shirts only. Like he started writing stipulations on the invoice. And so that was kind of his entry into licensing. Mm -hmm. But our first official with a contract licensing deal was with Whammo for boogie boards. And that was really exciting because we had, we did a licensing deal with them year after year for seven years. And that was, I have to back you up for just a sec. Just a sec. We got to talk about copyright here for just one quick question. Did he sign? All of those surfboards and all of that artwork. Did he always sign and signature? Every single time. Yeah. And do you know he was That's the important. first first surfboard artist ever to sign oh, wow. his name? That's important first because one. then that can prove your copyright ownership. So True. that in combination with the stipulations he put on the invoices, awesome. Not only that, it made him famous in the surf world because these surfboards were global. They were going out. Lost became the biggest surfboard manufacturer in the in the country, and they got really big globally. And Drew's name was on every single one of their surfboards. And um, people started saying, who's this Drew guy? I want more from him. I want, you know, and that that was what made him well known. So that's the other reason it's really important to have your name on everything. Always sign your work, guys. 
Uh, I remember when I was first starting out and I was like a teenager, I was scared to sign my work. I, I felt like I wasn't good enough. But just sign it anyway. Sign it anyway. Because you know what? Even if you look, even if you don't think your work is good enough, somebody likes it. People out there like it. And you know how much fun it is 20 years later to look back on your art and go, yeah, mm. look at how far I came. So we still get emails from people who get a hold of these old, old lost surfboards. Yeah. And they'll email me a picture of it and say, is this a Drew Brophy original? And I'll say, look for the signature. If the name Drew is signed on it, it is. Wow. And, and sometimes it's not. The name's not on it. And that means somebody else copied his work. Because mm -hmm. a lot of people copied his work and still do. Mm. And the copycats How do you deal with that? Uh, if it gets, if they're selling it commercially, I shut it down. I, I have to. I have to because yeah. of contracts that I have with licensees. I'm legally mm -hmm. obligated to shut it down. So I hate to have to do that, but I, I had to do that. Well, with it's a, your income. It's, it's your living. It's what pays your bills. And that does bring us to the importance of contracts. You know, this section about licensing is so important. So few people know about contracts or are scared of contracts or even scared of like asking for a contract. But they're there to protect both you, the artist, and the company, right? Yeah, they protect both you and the company. So the company needs a contract as well. Yeah. And this is really important. You cannot copy somebody else's art and sign one of those licensing agreements because every good licensing agreement has a statement that the artist warrants that they are not infringing on the rights of any other artist or intellectual property owner. And if they do and the company gets sued, you, the artist, is hmm. legally yeah, liable. Yeah, I've seen that clause. And so you have to be really careful. You have to be really careful. I mean, you can, you can copy someone's style. Nobody can own a style. But you can't mm -hmm. copy their work or even an element out of their work. This just happened with a, a musical group, a band in somewhere in Europe. They took Drew's art and another artist's art and copied different elements of it and made an album cover. Uh -oh. And the other artist, whose name escapes me at the moment, I feel really bad. I can't remember his name right now. He caught it and he raised holy hell about it. And he got the band to stop the production of everything. Like they had merchandise and everything. And the band has now hired that artist to create new art. But it wasn't the band's fault. Hmm. They hired an artist who didn't tell them they were stealing somebody else's art. Yeah. And that you happens. know, when I was teaching, I had students that would surf the internet and just pull images down and then start cutting them up and putting them back together in Photoshop, you know, like collages. But they kind of thought that this was okay. And, you know, I, I would say to them, now, look, if you can recognize somebody's artwork, if, if you have taken a piece from somebody's artwork and you can recognize a piece of that artwork in your work, you are infringing. You need to ask yourself, would I want somebody to do this to my artwork? How would I feel about somebody using my work that I spent a lot of time making? And it's, it's a matter of empathy, I more, think. It's wrong. It's just wrong to steal someone's art. Yeah. It's yours. 
Now, I will say it's okay to use somebody's work as inspiration. Yeah. Yeah. But here's where you get too close is when somebody looks at your one of your pieces, compares it to the one that you inspired you, and they can't tell the difference. Mm-hmm. That's where you have a problem. Yep. Okay. You know, and I have a lot of people that send me pictures of Drew's art being knocked off by someone else, and they'll go, Look at this guy knocking off Drew's art. You need to shut him down. And I'll look at it and I'll go, Well, what they're really doing is is stealing his style, and there's nothing I can do about that. They didn't actually copy exactly an element. They're mm-hmm. they're doing it themselves freehand. Because mm-hmm. I can tell, I can tell, and maybe it's kind of yeah. like you know the 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 jeweler can tell the difference between a real diamond and yeah. a fake diamond, but I can tell. And so we had a situation a couple of years ago where somebody sent me an email and they said, "Oh, this is so cool! Drew's art is on sunglasses." And I looked at, it, I go, "Yeah, no, we didn't do it. That looks exactly like Drew's art, but we didn't do a deal with." That company and it was Smith Optics, oh, right? Oh man, they're a major sunglass company, and so I had to, you know, when you get into a big company like that, that's when I have to get my attorney involved because they're not going to talk to me; they're going to talk to my attorney. So, and I hate every time I have to get my attorney involved because it costs me anywhere from yeah. five hundred to two thousand dollars, right? And it's not fair. Yeah, but I did because they were coming out with these sunglasses. They were calling them Southern California right. Surf Style. That's way too I'm close. Like, Wait a minute. Was it in-house? Well, there have been some companies no, that have used you, in-house designers. No, I'll tell you what happened. So they, so they had, it's, it's such a small world. Like it was actually a friend of a friend who did it, which makes Aww. it even worse. And I didn't even know that until later. But they have a team writer and their team writer said, hey, one of my good friends is an artist. I wanted him to design my signature glasses in the Southern California mm-hmm. surf style, right? So it was an outside artist who I had never heard of before, but when I looked at his Instagram, I could see he had been dro- copying Drew's art for a long time. He copied mm. one of Drew's waves exactly, exactly. Mm. I mean, there was no question. Like, I thought they took it from our website. That's how good of a copy job he did. So they had to, so Smith Optics pulled it from the market immediately when they realized it was infringement because yeah. they didn't want anything That's to do with the infringement. I'm going to imagine they probably made him pay them money back. He must have been humiliated. You know, weeks later, we ran into the friend. Mm. That's a friend, a friend of the artist, a friend of a friend. Who said, oh, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, this guy is really angry that you, you, you know, shut this down for him. And we're like, what are you, what's he talking about? He copied Drew's art. Why is he <laughs> What does he think? He oh. thinks that's okay. Because here's why it hurts us and it hurts Smith Optics. If we wouldn't have shut it down, first of all, they would have looked bad because all of Drew's fans would have said, hey, this is a Drew Brophy knockoff, right? Yeah. Because that happens. And if we want to go and do a deal with a sunglass company, which we do, that's one of the things we want to do. They're going to say, oh, it's already been done with Smith Optics. So sorry, no. Well, you know, and this circles right back around to the make art every day because 
Like you said earlier, it's okay to imitate a style, but you need to do it over and over and over again and let it grow and develop into your own voice. You know, it's it's when you do something over and over again and explore a form of visual expression, explore a style that you can find and develop your own voice. You can't make something exactly the same. You've got to push the boundaries. That's what all new art should be about is, is pushing that boundary through practice. So that brings us to success and stories, stories about success. You know, you mentioned earlier that you sometimes feel like you have 12 different things going on. I know we all can feel like a chicken running around with its head cut off. What do you do when you feel unfocused or overwhelmed? Or do you have any productivity tips or tricks or things that you do to get you back yeah, on track? There's only one thing that works, and that is... Surfing? <laughs> <laughs> well, you definitely, I mean, you definitely need to take time for yourself. I mean, uh, to, to get, yeah. to clear my mind, I will go to the beach, I'll go walking, I'll get in the water. Do you surf? I do. I, I don't surf as much as I used to. I used to surf every single I can't surf. day. Um, I can serve. I just don't do it as much anymore. I don't know why. You know, I yeah. just go through phases. Um, I'm in a backpacking yeah, phase yeah. right now. But but there's only one thing that... Oh, I love to hike. I'm a hiker oh, skier. Oh, yeah. I hike. I hike a couple times a week. I love it. There's so many trails where I live. Yeah. A lot of mountains and yeah, it's pretty amazing. Great way to get focused. Great way to empty your head out and, and but, but really, get some clarity. But really, if you feel like there's too many things and you're just like, okay, I'm, I'm trying to do this and I'm trying to do this and I'm trying to do this and now I should do this. There's only one solution and that is to choose one thing, one thing only to focus mm. on for the next four to 12 weeks. That's it. One thing. So if you're oh. working on, as an example, if you want to create an art series and mm -hmm. you want to exhibit it, Give yourself three months, give yourself a deadline because deadlines make you get things done. But you say, okay, for three months, that's the only thing I'm going to yeah. focus on first. So I will begin my day, you know, most people can only create for four hours at a time. I mean, some people can do eight hours. Interesting. Some people can do eight hours. I don't know. I, I couldn't. I yeah. start standing, yeah. sitting, you got to get up and move around. Main focus whatever that is. For me, you know, writing my book, that was the only way I could get my book done was to mm -hmm. make it my number one priority and everything else came after that. So I would write, I put myself on a morning writing schedule and I wasn't allowed, I wasn't allowed to even check my emails until after mm -hmm. I did my daily writing. And I got really strict with myself, but that was the only way I could get my book done. I love it. And I do that with everything now. It's the only way I can get things done. So right now I'm working on, you know, we created a new venture called brophyartacademy.com and we're selling online painting courses and mm. box kits, kits of um, Drew's Medium Posca paint pens. And I'm working on getting the sales there. And our sales page, I'm not happy with it at all. And let me tell you, to get a good sales page, I'm not happy with the way the websites, mm -hmm. you know, there's a lot of improvements. That oh, it looks beautiful. Made. Well, thank I'm you. I'm there looking at it now. I love these kits. They're cool looking. 
beginner, Posca beginner painting course. So uh, for those guys don't know, the Posca paint pens are these pens. They're kind of fat and they're loaded up with paint. Acrylics, right? Non-toxic. Yeah. So you can... Yeah, you can take them we outside. We take, take them, them on airplanes. You. We travel with them. It, we we do all of our live painting events with Poscas. Drew's going to be painting a live a surfboard live um, at the Ohana Music Festival in September, and all he brings is a little tiny bag of pasta paint pens, a surfboard, and a stand to put it in. And it's you know it's so easy. There's no mess. There's no brushes. There's no Clean up. Smell. There's no, if it spills on the ground, it washes. Nice. You know, if it gets on your hands, it washes off of soap and water. So anyway, that's my main focus right now is yeah. to get that sales page and the website looking the way I want it to because I'm not happy with it. And yeah. it's, it's a lot of work, but I'm not letting myself do any other project until I complete that. And I, I just have to get strict with myself. Otherwise nothing will get done well. Yeah, I love it. That is a great tip to just give yourself a couple of months with a deadline and do it every single day. You know, uh, Stephen King in his book on writing, he says the same thing. If you want to write, be a writer. Get up every day and write. If you want to be an artist, get up every day and make something. But I like your idea that you could switch focus after a couple of months and, and, you know, focus on the marketing and then yeah. You know, whatever needs to be do done everything at, at that once. time. It's not possible. Yeah. Very true. So in closing, I always ask my guests what books you would recommend. If there's any books that you give as a gift to friends or family or recommend for artists or a book that you just come back to and read over and over again for inspiration. Is there anything so, that you um, go to? There are a few books that I will never let go and that I've read over and over and over again. And these, these are books that really expand your mindset. It doesn't have anything to do with art, but it has to do with mm-hmm. growth, inner growth. One is You Were Born Rich by Bob Proctor. Mm. I have read that book four times. Every time I read it, mm-hmm. I swear to God, my income increases. <laughs> cool. Another one is... Big Magic by Elizabeth Gilbert. Ah, I know that one. I've heard of that from several guests. um, The Artist's Way by Julia Julia Cameron. Oh, that's a classic. Very cool. Another one that I've read over and over and over again, and I will never stop reading it. Uh, This is kind of a harder read, but it's called Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill. That's a classic too. And it's, it goes pretty deep. It's it's the first. Oh, I didn't know that improvement book ever Mm. written in the world ever it was written in like the 30s or 40s yeah and it's 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 a little tough to get through because it was written so long ago um but the language is a little different yeah yeah very cool it's a good one well thank you so much this has been so fun talking to you i have learned so much i'm sure we've all learned so much and of course all the links to everything will be down below you guys go get Maria's email series, sign up her for her newsletters. They are a wealth of information. And of course, buy her book. What's your book title again? My book is called Art, Money, Success. And you can get it on Amazon in Kindle, print version, and audio. If you like audiobooks, awesome. which everybody loves audiobooks. 
Um, hey, yeah. audio is great. You can clean while you listen. That's exactly what I do. Or drive or paint yeah. or anything where you don't have to really, yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, thank you so much. I want to thank you again. This has been wonderful. Thank you. I, you are so good at interviewing and I just loved being here with you. So thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Are you a teacher or a homeschooler or crafter? Perhaps you have kids that you like to share your love of nature with and explore the outdoors and have adventures with. Perhaps you like to go out and find bugs and frogs and turtles and snakes and bird's nests. Now you can bring that adventure inside and extend your adventure with your kids or your crafts with a craft project. Check out I Connect Crafts. That's E-Y-E, as in an eyeball, connectcrafts.com, where you can find over 70 different animals, all designed by yours truly, called the Totem Poppets. The Totem Poppets are fun, movable animals. You can paint them, you can stamp them, you can zentangle them. They can take anything you can throw at them, from crayons to watercolors. They're movable. Everyone has joints. You put them together with mini brads. We have six different colors of mini brads. You can choose blues, purples, greens, golds, silvers, whites, whatever you like, and you assemble them and then you can play with them. Stick them on a chopstick, make a play, put them in an art journal, a scrapbook, a greeting card, use them in a project for school. So check them out at iConnectCrafts.com. Well, that's it for the Artist Appeals. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I've enjoyed recording it. I just love talking with all these artists and business people. It's phenomenal, and I've learned so much. I hope you've learned something, too. You can get more information. You can check out some of the links that we talked about in these podcasts at theartistappeals.com. That's the artist. Appeals, A-P-P-E-A-L-S dot com. Thanks and have a good one.